Ryder Nation and William Powell bringing the energy, bringing the fight, bringing the fire every game day, every practice. Let's go, Ryder Nation. I'm ready. I'm ready. That is the Johnny McKegg Band with Here We Go. This is the Piffles Podcast, your premier Saskatchewan Rough Riders fan podcast. Thanks so much for taking time to give us a listen. I'm Alex. I'm Steve. No Greg today because uh, he got shipped back to Winnipeg. I don't, did something again. I don't know what happened. Maybe it was uh, his wife sent him back there or something. I don't know. But we jumped into the free agent market. That's right. We got the best of the best joining us this week. Joining us for the whole show. <laughs> The great Rob Vanstone of the Regina Leader Post and Saskatoon Star Phoenix. Rob, thanks for uh, coming in and doing this. Oh, thanks so much, Alex. Thanks, Steve. It's a great pleasure to be here. We have uh, we have a lot to get to. Obviously, the Riders are on a bye week, but uh, we'll have a, a preview coming up of the game. The West Final, Riders hosting the Bombers on Sunday. Rob, we're going to talk about your book here in just a little bit, but uh, let's get right down to business here. Give us a follow on Twitter, at PifflesPod. You can give me a follow, at RealAlexD. You'll find me at Safamod. And Rob, uh, where where can everybody find you? Um, probably the buffet um, <laughs> at, at, at Rob Vanstone. He says that as I haven't eaten supper yet. I'm, I, I'm really going right after now. this. I, well, maybe we'll go together. I need Perfect. to get myself back up to 700. So. <laughs> uh, Facebook.com slash Piffles Podcast. Also on Instagram, just search Piffles Pod. Go to the website, PifflesPodcast.com. Piffles Podcast is brought to you by Dairy Queen on Elphinstone Street and Sass Drive in Regina. They're on Skip the Dishes. Make sure you check them out. And also, we're a proud member of the CFPN, the Canadian Football Podcast Network, and a part of the Saskatchewan Podcast Network. Let's get to it. Time for the opening kickoff. <laughs> Let's start off with the uh, two games that happened this past week, the semifinals. Eskimos at the Alouettes. We'll start there in the East. A game that not uh, a lot of us saw coming. We all kind of picked the, uh, the Alouettes last week. Eskimos win 37-28. Trevor Harris Record-setting day. I don't think I've ever seen a quarterback play like that in the playoffs before, and that includes his sixth touchdown uh, game. Was that, that was last, last year. year. Yeah, and uh, that that was absolutely phenomenal watching him do that. Yeah, it was an event when there was finally an incompletion. It just when he gets on one of those rolls, and he can do that, and that's what makes him scary. And that's what I never thought I would say this makes Edmonton scary. I remember a game when Ottawa came here last year, and. Uh, Trevor Harris was just, he couldn't miss. He was throwing these beautiful touch passes right to the sidelines, just right over the defender with a receiver just getting in bounds. And just, he has some of those nights when he's absolute days, even when he's absolutely uncanny. And he might be the wild card in the whole playoff equation. What if Trevor Harris just cannot throw an incompletion, even if he tries? That could alter the balance of power everywhere. Who would, have, who would have thought going into that game that Trevor Harris would be up for a record like he was, what was it, 22 straight, and that Greg Ellingson, of all people, would let him down? The Ottawa connection. It's uh, it's making their way over to Edmonton, and they're doing pretty good. Montreal's defense, on the other hand, they were just invisible, missing tackles, and, and they just couldn't get anything going. No, and they uh, Vernon Adams looked like a... just did not look, perform the way he had performed. He just... Uh, He'd gotten them there. Then so much of Montreal's success to this point in the season is attributable to the way Vernon Adams Jr. played. But those interceptions and just the costly turnovers, and it was a real sad way for the season. And you just saw the anguish on the sidelines when he's pounding his fist on the turf at, per, at Percival Molson Stadium. He just knew how hard he was taking it because there's, there's times he has willed that team to victory. And for it to end like that, it was really surprising because I think there weren't many people picking Edmonton to win and, there may have been fewer picking Winnipeg to win. No, I, I got to say, you got to give Vernon Adams a huge shout out. A lot of guys would have been stuck in the locker room kind of feeling down after that performance. What does he do? Goes out onto the field and sits there signing hundreds of autographs for fans at the end of the season. That's why he's a great community guy. That's why I love having him in the CFL. Off day, he looked like a rookie quarterback uh, coming into his first real playoff game. What I liked is at the end, uh, Christian Matt, offensive lineman for the... Uh for the Alouettes, consoled him on the sidelines. You could see, like you said, it's hitting his fist on the ground, but he was very emotional after. He was crying after the game, feeling like he let the team down. And he said, Vernon, you carried us. You got us here. You're a big reason why we are here. No one ever expected us to get this far, especially with how 
the offseason went in Montreal and everybody was still, you know, this is a dumpster fire team. And uh, to see the O-linemen come up to him and be like, pick your head up. It, it's good. You, you're a part of what we're building here. We're, we're building around you. And it was, it really goes to show just how, how liked Vernon Adams is on his team and in the CFL here. And it, uh, Montreal has a lot to look forward to. Sometimes too, you have to stumble a little bit before you can taste that adversary, before you, adversary, adversity, nice wordsmith, before you can figure it out. I look, I look back to the 1988 Rough Riders and they had made, they had made the playoffs in, in 11 years. Suddenly they make the playoffs, but BC comes here and absolutely thumps them. And as, as bitter, bitterly disappointing as that was, there were a lot of people saying that this is not going to happen to us again. Of course, the Riders win the Grey Cup the next year, but that 88 loss really sat, did not sit well with anybody. And loss isn't going to, but it just, it gnawed at people. You look at uh, the 2007 Grey Cup and the Riders lost in BC and Kerry Joseph, when he was up here for the Plaza of Honor festivities this year, said to a few people, after that 06 loss, the lot, a lot of the chatter was, okay, remember this, because this isn't going to happen to us next year. And the next year they went back to BC, won the West Final, ultimately won the Grey Cup. Right before... Riders win the Grey Cup in 2013, the year before they're an 8-10 team that almost goes into Calgary and wins in the opening round. Darian Durant throws four touchdown passes, and there's a Romby Bryant, Bryant touchdown at the end. Riders shook that off. It bugged them. They added to the nucleus. They won the following year. So if you look, even in 65 when the Riders won the Grey Cup, the year before they go to Winnipeg for the West uh, semifinal, they're down 15-9. Jim Warden is open in the end zone. Ronnie throws the ball toward Jim Warden, and the ball hits the upright. So... You can look at the year before each of the Rough Riders Grey Cup victories and you can see that disappointment and how they were able to rally from it. Maybe Montreal can do the same thing. Let's hope that that uh, is similar given how we lost out last year and coming up against a game and against the same team we lost to last year. But, uh... well, that, that team, the Bombers, going into Calgary, absolutely dominating them in the second half. 35-14 the final score, but it was 14-5 for the Stamps in the second quarter. And Winnipeg went on a 30-0 run the rest of the way. And and it kind of, re- I said this on the show last week, I think if it's going to be as cold as it was for that game, like it was last year for the West semifinal here in Regina, that it's going to be, if it's going to be close, Winnipeg's going to win because they're just going to grind them down in the fourth quarter and run the ball and run the ball. And that's exactly what they did. And they just t- took over. I, I've never seen Bo Levi Mitchell that play that poorly ever. It was a, Bad time for him. I mean, great for us, I guess, if we don't want to see the stamps go very far. But uh, for him to pick, uh, you know, the worst game of his career was very ill-timed. He he just looked average. I don't know what Winnipeg did, especially coming out of halftime. He, they, he outright said that they were throwing things at him that he's never seen before. For a guy who's been in the league, what, seven, seven, seven years, years now? now? Yep. To, to get that kind of comment after a playoff game shows you just how prepared that Winnipeg defense was. And... I can't believe I'm going to do this. Listeners might want to pay attention here. I'm about to say something nice about Chris Strebler. Well, <laughs> it's never happened. Dude balled out on a on a broken foot with torn ligaments. And he looked, I mean, as as good as he can as a runner. I mean, I don't I won't say anything nice about his passing, but that that was a hell of a performance. I don't know how how long was the needle they put in his foot. They must have done something and you look in rider history, and George Reed did that in the 67 playoffs. He was basically mummified. He rushed for 204 yards in a playoff game and was just his foot was just a mess. He was just a total walking bruise. And, and you remember, remember Wes Cates in 2007 yep. goes into the West Final in BC. The, the riders starting, riders running backs for the West semifinal in 07 were hold on, hold Josh Ronick oh, yeah, and, and Corey uh, Holmes. Yep. And uh, all of a sudden, Wes Cates comes back for the West Final and had to get his foot numbed. And then, fittingly, it was Wes Cates who got the last first down in the Grey Cup. But what Wes Cates did in 2007, it's, I don't think it's a lot different than what Chris Drebler is, is deal, doing now. It's just absolute pure guts. And you, you have to have boundless admiration for what he's doing. That is, that is amazing. And what Paul Apolise put together oh. on offense with a, a, a quarterback who is almost afraid to run in Zach Caleros and a quarterback who can basically only run in Chris Drebler. What what he put together for the for that game plan, especially in the second half, that was nothing short of masterful. And you wonder if okay, they've I talked to I talked to Luke Mullinder today. He was on our Leader Post Rider Rumblings podcast, and we talked a bit about that. And and Luke said, okay, but now they've played that card. Now that card is on the table. They've lost the element of surprise as far as using Chris Strevler 
like they did. I'm sure there'll be all sorts of little variations of that, given Paul Lapolis's intelligence and pedigree. But that being said, they've played that card. Chris Strebler isn't going to surprise the riders now. So maybe it works the riders' benefit that the Winnipeg had to play a game the week before. Uh, then again, I keep throwing all these historical references in, but 1997, the riders pulled the option quarterback attack on the uh, on the Calgary Stampeders in the West semifinal, and they had no idea that Reggie Slack was going to come out and do that. And uh, they went into Edmonton the next week and won two, doing a lot of the same things. So Edmonton saw Reggie Slack on film leading up to the 1997 West final, and they weren't able to combat it any more adeptly than the Calgary Stampeders were. So uh, maybe they can squeeze another victory out of that one, but I, I just don't see it happening. I think the Riders are the better team, and they're going to win. If, if Winnipeg wants to actually surprise Ryder Nation, they might actually get Chris Streveler to complete a pass. <laughs> <laughs> that would be you had to social. Get your, you had to get your shot in I there. I did, right? I did. I couldn't leave it with a nice comment. I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't know how the Riders are going to combat that. At least, uh, I don't... And we'll talk about this in the in the preview a little bit later on, but uh, the Riders could potentially have their own two-headed quarterback system. And and Rob, you saw that in in 1989, especially with the Riders with Tom Burgess and, and Ken Austin. It was a two-quarterback system, but two quarterbacks that were a little bit more similar than Strevler and, and Caleros. Yeah, that's so different than than what we saw just this past weekend. Neither one of them was a, was a runner. Um, in the case of Austin and Burgess, they they could both could get around a little bit earlier in their career but none of them was going to give you a bit of the kind of different dimension that, that uh, Chris Trevler was going to give you. They, they had their own strengths. One was better against the zone. One was better the, it, at beating the blitz. Tom Burgess would absolutely kill you if you tried to blitz him. And if you, tr- you tried playing zone against Ken Austin, he would lacerate you. And the Hamilton Tiger Cats certainly found that out in 1989. But they're, they're both primarily passing quarterbacks on a team that had an array of great receivers and Pell Sartori this offensive genius making things work as well. So it's, it's a different in this case in that uh, you've got Chris Trevler was in the game for 23 snaps on Sunday and did not throw a pass. That's amazing. So in a way they're telegraphing what they're going to do. You know that if Chris Trevler is in, they're going to run, but the, the question then becomes, how are they going to run? Because he, ca- he was in the book game for 23 snaps, carried the ball on 12 of them, but they've also got Andrew Harris. They've also got Nick Dembski that they can throw into the, into the equation, it, it, it's almost a bit of a throwback decades ago before either of you were born or perhaps your parents were born when there was some creativity to how the everybody moved around in the backfield and the, even the identity of the running back was a bit of, was a result of uh, trickery. And uh, the Bombers are using that indecision to their advantage now. How are they, yeah, they're going to hand off, but to whom and which way is he going? And they can use motion to their advantage to simply to to considerable effectiveness as we've seen, and we saw exactly that with Nick Dembski's touchdown when uh, Strebler was on in the game, and they had to combat him going outside, leaving Dembski free to run up the middle for his score. I mean, it's tough to to battle against three very different running type threats. I mean, all Chris Strebler is going to do is run at you. He's going to try and run through you. Nick Dembski's going to go around you. And Andrew Harris can do both. It's hard to, it's really hard to defend that, especially when all three are on the field and all three are going at once. We'll talk a little bit more about the Winnipeg Blue Bombers coming up a little bit later in the show. The opening kickoff presented by Kathy Festion of Royal LePage Adrana Realty. Check out her Facebook page, Kathy Festion Royal LePage. Now, this week's Odds and End Zones by Churchill Brewing Company. Look around the CFL, a couple other stories. And uh, Rob, Duran Carter got released. Is. Is his career over now in the CFL? Is is that it? I don't think so. I, you all talent will always get a chance, and uh, I'm, I'm surprised that if they were going to do it, they didn't do it at some point during the year when they could have when they could have bought themselves some cap room by doing so because there there really wasn't a lot of productivity there during the year. But I think one of the reasons they kept him around is because of that abundant talent. And next year he'll still only be 29 years old, and in the right situation, as we saw here. In 2017, he can absolutely light it up. Um, if a coach can do with Deron Carter what Chris Jones did, and it's still a mystery to me why Chris Jones didn't adopt the same approach in 2018 as he did in 2017, mm-hmm. uh, I think you can 
you can go a distance with Deron, Deron Carter. I think if, if Chris, if, if Deron Carter has a coach like Craig Dickinson, who you just want to run through a wall for, I, I, I'm not espousing that the Rough Riders bring him back, but I, but if that were to be the alliance, I think there's, there's a lot that's salvageable there with Deron Carter. Well, if you look at him this year, he wasn't as big of a liability off the field. Yeah, he still ran his mouth on Twitter. He's, he's entertaining. He's a self-proclaimed uh, troll. But beyond that, there was no real big stories. There was no fights at practice. There was no criminal issues. There was nothing like that. He just wasn't getting it done on the field. And to me, that that's the scarier part. He, did the talent drop off, or were they just not using him right? The big question around him, though, is does that one guy on Twitter have to kiss his ass? <laughs> does he have to join the kiss... The, the Deron Carter Kiss My Butt Club. I don't know if you saw this, I'm not Rob. familiar with that one. So before the season started, uh, some guy said, I'll, I'll bet you to Deron Carter that uh, you won't finish the season on a CFL roster or, or the BC Lions roster. And he said, if I get it right, you got to buy me tickets to Grey Cup. And so Deron's like, okay, fine. Getting Grey Cup tickets is, is easy. I can do that for you. I want you to literally kiss my butt. And you're a big wrestling fan. You remember the old Vince McMahon oh, kiss my yes, ass club, yes. right? So I, I defined season though. Yeah, the so, Lions so season is over, but the CFL season is not yet concluded. So that's where the the big Semantics. debate lies, right? So should this guy have to join the club? Be or, the or does Deron owe tickets? Yeah, I would think so. A little bit of both. Bring him out to Grey Cup, Deron. Bring him out there, and, and Deron goes there, and they do they do something. <laughs> I don't know if I really want to see that, but. At least, at least take him to a movie like he did yeah. with the Ryder fans in 2017. Devon's basically a harmless, fun person. He is. He really is. I really enjoyed the, him the time that, that he was here and, and watching him play. The Riders got the absolute best out of Deron Carter. Yeah, there was that imbroglio at practice with Sam Williams, but um, for the most part, they, had, they got so much out of Deron Carter that year. Mm -hmm. And then the following year, it seems like they were determined not to use that weapon to their advantage. Well, it was just a strange situation. Or maybe that maybe that's the shelf life. Maybe one year plus six games, seven games is about all you're going to get out of him with anything approaching maximum effectiveness. Maybe, I, I maybe the riders extracted as much as they could. I dare you to find somebody in the CFL right now that loves life as much as he does, though. John Rush. No, he loves dogs more than he loves Cody life. Fajardo. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Uh, speaking of Fajardo, named uh, Player of the Year finalist against uh, Brandon Banks out of Hamilton in the end. As for the riders, uh, up for the awards, Cody Fajardo, Cameron Judge for Canadian, and Craig Dickinson for Coach of the Year. Do you guys see either, any one of those three winning their award? I'd say Cameron Judge is is the only one that uh, has a legitimate shot at this point. Hinoch Buamba's got the bigger name and the bigger reputation. I think if you look at plays that have been impactful and highlight real plays, Cameron Judge has had the better year, but he knocked Muamba as I think the more recognizable name. I, that's the one that I think. Uh, th I think the Riders might have the best shot there. I think there's a very good case for Cody Fajardo, and I don't think there's a lot of people who agree with me. Um, I've I've been arguing right along with you on that one on Twitter. Well, let, let, yeah, let's let's try and make this case, Steve. Like I th I think if you have to look at degree of difficulty, what he does as a quarterback has carries more weight than, with all due respect to Brandon Banks what is done as a receiver. What he's done for this franchise, you take Cody Fajardo away from the Saskatchewan Rough Riders and you're talking a pretty good draft pick next year. What the transformative effect he has had on this team, an all-star quarterback in the West Division when their quarterback goes down three games into the year. Um, yeah, I only threw 18 touchdown passes. Ron Lancaster threw 16 touchdown passes in 1970 and was named the league's most outstanding player. So... Um, yeah, he only threw for a shade over, over 4,302 yards, which is a low total for a league passing yardage leader. But Kerry Joseph was just over 4,000 4, in 2007. And was he didn't have a lot of... player. And yeah, Brandon Banks had 1,550 receiving yards, but so what? Joey Walters had 1,715 in 1981, and he didn't win <laughs> most outstanding player. When you look back... And the Joey deserved it. I love Joey Walters. And so, his name's actually going to come up a little bit later good. in the show here. Uh, the argument that a lot of, of ta Hamilton fans try to make is he led the league in passing. He was far and away the league leader. Well, no, he beat um, Burnham by, what was it, 28 yards. And 1,550 yards is not an exceptional season anymore. It was five years ago, but it would not have finished first in any year since 2015. Yes, he had 13 touchdowns. That's that's a solid year as a receiver, 
but so is 600 y- uh, rushing yards and 10 rushing touchdowns, and only two of them were were sneaks. Yeah, I mean, I think the the, alum, the the design that went into the Cody Fajardo touchdown runs, it wasn't like a James Franklin 14 touchdown runs last season, average average gain per touchdown one yard. I mean, Cody Fajardo was a weapon along the ground. I don't think you can conveniently subtract the touchdown runs from the equation. Uh, and I, I don't think this argument is going to really be that successful. Um, I think Brandon Banks will probably win pretty anyway. handily, but I think there's a really good case for Cody Fajardo. I'm not sure that Craig Dickinson is as fortunate. If you look at 15 and three and, and Craig Dickinson lost his starting quarterback. Well, so did, uh, so did Orlando Steinauer. And what and Dane Evans did there. What was Dane Evans did there. Awesome. And, and uh, not only that, they're 15 and three, they got to play 10 of their games against the West. So it's not, and they, it's and they not like they're, and, two, and they were eight and two in, in those games. Yeah. One of them was lost on a blocked field goal by the Calgary Stampeders. And the other one was on Fajardo's last second touchdown rush. So they've, very easily could have won both of those games and been seventeen and one, and still nobody's talking about them. Yeah, and uh, so I, I think I, I think you're t- the, of the awards that we're discussing. I think the East probably wins all of them, but uh, I don't know. The Cordy Fajardo, I think, is the best story in the Canadian Football League this year. Did Charleston Hughes get snubbed? Should he have been the Defensive Player of the Year for the West over Willie Jefferson? No, uh, I think they got that one right. I, 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 the sorry. stat the stats are there. For for Hughes to beat him, but I I just see Willie Jefferson as having been more impactful as a player throughout the game. Defenses had to work around Willie Jefferson, or offenses, sorry, had to work around Willie Jefferson. I don't feel like they really game planned as much for Charleston Hughes. Although I mean, there there were certainly were double teams, and he did lead lead the league in sacks, and he had twice as many tackles as as Willie Jefferson. And I go back to the Rough Riders Bombers' most recent game, and grant, granted, it's a snapshot of the season, but. After every game, I go home and rewatch the game on the PVR and do some sort of statistical tallies that interest absolutely nobody except my mother. And um, so I rewatched that game and took note of various things, quarterback pressures, all this. And, and then I thought, did Willie Jefferson get hurt? Where was he? So I did play from beginning and watched again and took note of, was Willie in the game? If so, what did he do? He was in the game for, I think, 81.2% of the plays. Nothing. He did absolutely nothing. There was no tackles. No, no he did anything. not appear on the stat sheet. Yeah. So uh, he kind of hit the skids toward the final third of the year, and so did Car- Charleston Hughes for the for the most part. He went, I think, four games without a sack. But in that last game against Edmonton, the one that they have to win to get first place, he had a sack, and not only that, he tipped a pass that was intercepted by uh, Cameron Judge in return for a touchdown. And and you look at the multi sack games that Charleston Hughes has had over the years, and I think. I think his body of work has got to count for something. Willie Jefferson's been around for a few years and has been extremely good, but it's almost, he almost deserves a lifetime achievement award for what he's done. <laughs> I mean, leading the league in sacks for four consecutive years at ages 32, 33, 34, 35. That's incredible. That's amazing. Well, let's, uh, let's, let's move on to a couple questions and we got them uh, for you, Rob, as well, too. This is for underdogs memorabilia. Underdogs memorabilia. If the Riders win the Grey Cup this year, is this the most talented Riders team of all time? I hmm. say no. I think the 89 team, when you look at top to bottom who was on that roster and you look at the all-time greats who were on that roster, there's just way more all-time greats on that on that 89 team than there is on this team right now. If you look at that team, it's, it's at the time it seemed like a fluke that they beat Edmonton and went on to win the Grey Cup. But if you look at that personnel and you look at Jeff Fairholm and Ray Algard, both Canadians playing slot back with James Ellingson backing them up, and, uh, I mean, that team was absolutely amazing. I look at that 2004 team that didn't win, and I think that's about as talented a rider team as I've ever seen. Roy Shivers put together an amazing, amazing team. That just was, uh, it's amazing that team didn't get to the Grey Cup. Uh, some of those teams in the 60s that didn't win. Um, NFL Films did a series a few years ago on missing rings and just great NFL teams that didn't mm-hmm. win Super Bowls. And I think you could almost do missing rings equivalents for the Rough Riders. You look at 67 through six through 1970 inclusive, the 14 and two rider team that didn't get to the Grey Cup. Uh, some of those post-1966 teams that you look everywhere and basically anybody who was a starter is in the Plaza of Honor. Many are in the Hall of Fame and and they didn't, uh, they didn't win Grey Cups. But um, I don't know how you... For some reason, that that night, that 2004 team, I just look at that and think, geez, that that team could have won because it, it was absolutely loaded everywhere. They built such a good, uh, good, such a great team. 
and then misfortune befalls them. I, I think we're a little early into a, a lot of the careers for some of the, the talented players on this roster to ever to really even think of them as being in that most talented yeah. conversation yet. And may they be if they when you look back on it, possibly. But you know, we're talking about a lot of young guys on this roster. I I just don't see it yet. What they are is deep, and. There's some a lot of resumes that have yet to be completed. How good is Shaq Evans going to be? How many thousand-yard seasons is he going to have? We still don't know, but there will be multiple seasons of that description, barring unforeseen events. But I think leading up to the trade deadline this year, and, and the riders, I think, underline this by not making any moves, you look at that team, and where is a flaw? If a couple of injuries hit, nobody's going to be able to withstand that at this time of the year. Of the year. You could say that like for it. any team, though. For right? any team. But if you look at the depth that the Riders had and, and really had to look at it around the time of the trade deadline, I'm not sure it's the most talented team they've ever had, but especially in a salary cap era, to have the kind of depth that they are they are blessed with, when you consider that their quarterback is hurt three plays into the year, when you consider all the, f- the flux on the offensive line, Brendan Labatt not playing for the first two-thirds of the season, uh, what happened with Dan Clark, uh, Dakota Shepley stepping in like he did, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, overall, they haven't been especially beset by injuries this year, but when they have been, people have stepped up. And I think the depth of this team is is a major reason for its excellence. Now, I know I, I, I can speak for for Steve and myself here. We we took a lot of delight in watching the Calgary Stampeders implode this past weekend, but it brought a really good question because um, – a lot of Stamps fans were saying, well, just watch what you wish for. Just wait till next week, till Winnipeg gets there. Maybe you guys won't be so so cocky and everything then. But would you rather see another team lose, such as the Stampeders, or watch your team win the Riders? So, and, and you're wearing a Denver Broncos hat <laughs> matching me right now. Would you rather see, I mean, obviously our team's not going to win the Super Bowl <laughs> this year, but would you like to see, rather see the Chiefs lose? Oh, yeah. Or watch the Broncos win? At this time of year, you, I mean, you want the Broncos to get a better draft pick. And you want the, you want everything to happen to the Chiefs, it's especially and especially the Raiders. So um, yeah, at this point, at this point of the year, with the Broncos season being uh, lost, I just you just get vindictive, vindictive and petty. That's <laughs> I and I don't hide from that. I in fact I relish it. And I, I'm kind of the same way. You look at, you look at the success the Stampeders have had over the last 15 years. It's been unbelievable. They've missed the West Final twice since 2008. That that's that's an incredible wow. stat. I, I think to me watching them lose was more satisfying because it makes the last two ga- or the last three games of the season just that little bit extra. There's that little bit of excitement because they're not there and there's there's a wide open spot now because you just expect the Calgary Stampeders to be the Western uh, Grey Cup nominee. It's just how it's been. And yeah, a lot of it has to do with jealousy. I mean, we could we'd love for our team to be in how many you know what ten out of twelve West Finals. Like we'd love to see the Riders there every single year. Obviously, it's not going to happen. But uh, yeah, that's a little bit of jealousy, but and like you said, pettiness and pettiness is will, a wonderful. Thing. I will fully, I'm on board with that too. I I love seeing teams that I don't really like. I, now I got to say I I respect that what the Stampeders have done. It's like the the New England Patriots. I'm not even mad that the New England Patriots win anymore. It's just like wow, we're watching something special with them. And I and I say that about the Stamps as well too. But when they lose, it's just you know just that much better. I always feel bad for Mark Mueller. Uh, grandson yep. of Ryder Royalty. And uh, I'm old enough to remember John Huffnagel quarterbacking the Rough Riders and even assistant coaching with the Rough Riders. So there's there's that. And Dave Dickinson's a tremendous person. So they, I, they're not the same Stampeders that used to... They had some teams in the, you know, maybe a decade ago that really seemed to strut and and, and they had a swagger before they'd really earned it. And they... You look at the 2010 West Final. You look at the 2013 West Final. I think those teams just thought that they were going to waltz into the Grey Cup, and they're the, they're the Stampeders, and and um, they had an attitude, and they they never really backed it up with performance when it came down to a critical situation, and the Stampeders had largely largely dispelled that reputation, and that's what made the game on on Sunday surprising because I it wasn't a matter of the Stampeders being overconfident as they were wont to do, I think, in previous years. I just think they got outplayed and they got their butts kicked at home. Mm-hmm. And that, I could have seen a, a closer game unfolding and maybe understood it a bit more, but 30 consecutive points, that was just so, so shocking. I, I don't think anybody can figure it out, and I think a lot of those people reside in Calgary. 
moving on here. Once again, Steve, you do have, uh, you've searched high and low on Twitter to find something that just made you, whether it was laugh or happy, the CFL tweet of the week. Who gets honored this week here on the Piffles podcast? You know what? And uh, I did it last week and I'm doing it again this week. Well, no, last week was at least CFL, CFL themed. This one is not at all. And I'm going to take a little bit of flack for, uh, for highlighting this one, given the, the topics of today. It's also our very first double winner. The uh, tweet of the week goes out to Krista again. And if you've been paying attention to the news, you'll understand why this one was good. Don Cherry is a lot like Tim Hortons. People have been tricked into thinking it's ultra Canadian, so they keep going back out of habit, even though 90% of what they offer, what they have to offer is stale and gross. I don't remember the last time I read a tweet and actually howled at it. And that was, was it because you had your Tim Hortons coffee beside right, it you. It absolutely was. I have I go I go for a tea at Tim's every day. Their chili is so good. I love the Tim Hortons chili. I don't know the last time I've ha- I've had muffins there, and I always I regret it every time. But it's just they're convenient. They're everywhere. But oh, I I sat there drinking my tea, and just broke out laughing. So if you don't follow her, you need to. It's was it Krista underscore B underscore eighty five something like that. She's yeah. she's a great follow. Yeah. So there you go. Our first double winner. One of these days, I'll pick a real CFL theme tweet again. The uh, the check is in the mail, Krista. But uh, the real reason, Rob, why we did bring you on here is your new book that just came out last week, 100 Things Rough Riders Fans Should Know and Do Before They Die. What's one thing in here that you think, just kind of above anything else, Rough Rider fans should know about their team before they die? One thing they should know. Hmm. You know what I found really interesting? And this might be a bit of bit obscure and a bit nerdy, but that's me. Um, I never knew this, but um, they their first game was actually played in Regina. It was played in Moose Jaw. Really? At the uh, Moose Jaw, what was no, then known in 1910 as the Moose Jaw Baseball Grounds. And it's now part of Crescent Park, uh, near where the Moose Jaw Public Library is now. So this past summer, I took a pilgrimage, or made a pilgrimage to Moose Jaw with Mark Melnichuk, our, one of our videographers. We went up there and did a video. And it was so cool to stand on this very spot where the Moose Jaw Tigers beat the Regina, Regina Rugby Club on October 1st, 1910. So I thought that was cool. Um, I don't know how many times you've driven down Broad Street by the Value Village Mall. Mm-hmm. And the par- Value Village parking lot is where they played their first home game in, uh, uh, in October of 1910 against Moose Jaw again. And I, I didn't know this, but they've actually got monuments on Broad Street. Yeah. Talking aboard... Uh, showing details and photos from the team's past. Even if you go inside the mall itself, there's some, there's a display. Those are relatively recent too. Is that right? Yeah. I had no idea how long they'd been there. And a couple years, I think. Yeah. I I strongly suggest going to value village and checking out one of the really cool places in rider history. I'd never, I had never done that until my 20th wedding anniversary, my wife and I on May 15th. What a date, Rob. We were going to go for a walk (laughs) in the park and it was kind of a lousy night out. It was, it wasn't very nice. We went, we took about two steps around uh, to begin our trek around the lake, scared a duck and decided <laughs> we're going to uh, go somewhere else. And what do we do now? So we went to Value Village for our 20th wedding anniversary <laughs> and we looked at monuments on the sidewalk and then we walked inside and, uh, and then we went to the Southland Mall food court for our anniversary dinner and I treated her to a booster juice for dessert. So um, I just found that that was so much fun doing that. Just thinking, my goodness, this all happened here. On, on the in corner of Broad and Seventh Avenue, so that's my, uh, that's one. That's one number one. Another thing I thought would be really cool to do, and I haven't done it yet, is go to a rider game everywhere they could possibly play. And there's still a few that I haven't crossed off the list. And I've, I'd love to see a game in Montreal. Uh, I've, I have not yet done that, except for Grey Cups at Olympic Stadium, mm-hmm. and uh, see a game at the new stadium in Hamilton. See a game at the new stadium in Winnipeg. Seeing a rider game on the road is a really unique thing, and. Uh, I suggest, I recommend that for anybody. In fact, uh, there may be a lot of Ryder fans traveling to Calgary very soon. So, Montreal should be at the very top of your next visit list. Yeah. Easily the best stadium that I've been to in the CFL. I've only walked by it. I've never actually been there. There's, there used to be a jazz club by there called Biddle's Jazz and Ribs. And so I went there and OD'd on some jazz and walked by the stadium and thought, man, it would really be cool to go in there and, and uh, see, a, see a football game. And I uh, uh, still haven't done that. I guess I better get on it. I've been there once. I went there for the uh, regular season game in 2008. The Riders, I think it was 35 to one. They got absolutely destroyed. Oh. Neil Hughes was was the starting running back that game because they ran into so many injuries. 
with all the broken legs and Wes Cates was out that year and it was it's a good thing the fans around there is just having such a great time. They're there for a party that it was it just erased. Isn't what Montreal the game was. fun? It's it's the best city to go to in, in Canada for we went, a road game. We went to my wife and I went to Toronto where her parents and her family lives and we went to a Leafs game on a Saturday and then a couple of nights on a Monday we went to a to a Canadians home game. And uh, I could not believe the difference. We were sitting in the upper deck at the at the Bell Center, and the fans are singing. They're having the greatest time. Where all the all the all the Leafs fans sat there, acting like they were performing a tax audit. Montreal, the <laughs> sense of fun that Montreal has with regard to everything. And I was lucky enough to go there in '89 for the Jazz Festival too, which was a great event in my life. And Montreal is just an absolute gas. So if you can get to get to Montreal and go to a go to a game, uh, I still I still got to do that. That's very high on the list. How long did this book take you to write? Oh, goodness. A lot of three-hour increments. Um, I started writing it in the spring of, of 2018, around May or June. And, and along the, at the same time, I did a bunch of interviews for it. And the manuscript was due February 1st of this past year. So what's that? Seven or eight months. Um, and, but it never really stopped. Uh, I had most of it locked down by January, but of course we all know how eventful January was in Ryderville. So suddenly Chris, the Chris Jones chapter, chapter 82 had to be rewritten with a new ending and suddenly, okay, I guess I better do a section on Jeremy O'Day who then hires Craig Dickinson who also warranted some space. And then I thought I had it pretty much locked down and then the writer signed John Ryan. So I'm begging the publisher several months after deadline, can I add this chapter? So, um, and then finally, two days before public, it went to the presses in Chicago in, in August, I was able to get a late revision in on the, um, game in Montreal that was shortened by the storm because there was a parallel to that in 1954 when the writers went to BC. And I'd already mentioned that in the book under a chapter that was imaginably called goofy games in rider history. So uh, I was able to, uh, I guess overall from the first time I, opened a Microsoft Word file to the final time I annoyed the publisher. It was about 15 or 16 months. But it was weird because I kind of pecked away at it. It was like, do a chapter a day. And it, it wasn't a linear writing process or a chronological one, unlike the 66 book or the 89 book, where you're kind of just following a, a path. But here, I think I wrote the Ray Algard chapter, which was chapter 81, before I wrote chapter 6. And there's so many entry points. That was a really weird part about the writing, writing process, was that it wasn't it wasn't really that orderly. Uh, I knew uh, there were several things that I did before I wrote chapter one. I hope I wrote chapter one. Let me just check. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's in there. 2013 Grey Cup. So I did, that was a really long-winded, I, I probably wrote chapters in less time than it took me to answer that question. I do apologize. So how many chapters didn't make the cut? Is there, is there going to be a second book, the, the 101 to 200 things a writer fan should do? I would love that. If, if, if it sells well enough and there's, a, there's another printing, I, I think there's a, a case for some alterations. Uh, I think there's got to be some Cody Fajardo material in there. <laughs> I mean, a lot of the book as it stands now could be outdated in two weeks because I've written about four Grey Cup victories. They all get a chapter, but they could have five race very soon. And that would certainly be the impetus for a revision if sales warrant. So, um, I initially had a list of about 150 and that was the first night that I said yes. Um, at which point my wife was wondering, why did I ever say yes to him? And, uh, I, I got about 150 and then I, they told me I could do a hundred chapters and about 10 to 20 little sidebars or little color, color pieces, like shorter chunks. So, I ended up with a hundred chapters and 20 little sidebars. So there were about 30 that didn't make the cut. And then fortunately, you know, postscript, I haven't had too many causes to think, you know, okay, I should have included that. You kind of, I wish Cody Fajardo was in the book, but when the book goes to press in August, there's not a lot you can do because he isn't yet this phenomenon. There's, you know, given the events of the last couple of months, it certainly led me to think if I ever have an opportunity to kind of uh, revise this, there's, I think there's going to be some material here. Is there, is there one particular chapter that you, you just, you cut and you, it, it took you a long time to go, no, that's the one, that's the one that doesn't make it. Is um, there one that you really wanted to get in there that, that didn't make the cut? No, that was the good part of it. Um, nothing that really gnawed at me. They gave me the luxury of doing these little sidebars. So anything that really, 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 I felt should be in there, got in there. I haven't had any writer's remorse yet. 
the, the, the apprehension now is that now that it's written, I just don't want to look at it because all I'm going to do is try and copy edit it again. It's, 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 it's a mind game you play. I just can't read it for pleasure because I'm going to be thinking, should I phrase this differently or should I, that process never ends. So, um, I'm just, I kind of flip through it really quickly and look at the pictures and there's 10 pictures in there. <laughs> and so the pictorial aspect of it is the, is the highlight for me now. Now is, uh, I said, we mentioned his name a little bit later on in the show and, and this is later, later on the show now. Chapter 17. Joey. Is Joey Walters your favorite rider of all time? He's one of my favorite people of all time. I unquestionably my favorite rough rider of all time. My favorite athlete of all time. Um, just an absolutely sensationally nice person. And, um, I always liked him as a player and, uh, I was this 15 year old kid. I bought a rider Jersey at the start of the 79 season, not really expecting to go two and 14. And Ronnie had just retired. So I needed a new, I needed a new rider Jersey and okay. So there's no more, I guess I could keep wearing the number 23 Jersey, but I wanted a, a rider Jersey with a player's number on it. So I bought this rider Jersey and okay, what number do I put on there? Okay. 17 Walters I put on the back. And then the first regular season game of 79, he got hurt. I didn't play again until October of that year. So I was questioning that decision, but that year he ended up catching 772 yards worth of passes in six games. Just extraordinary. And um, in the in winter of 81, Joey stayed here for the winter. He just did community appearances on behalf of the team, played on a, played on a basketball team. Um, and his dad actually went to high school, at Wilson High School in Florence, South Carolina, and was a teammate of uh, Darian Durant's father in high school. Oh, wow. Joey was a really good basketball player. Uh, he initially had uh, thought he was going to be a basketball was going to be it for him because he could he was six foot five foot ten and he could dunk. He was just an amazing athlete. And uh, I saw it advertised somewhere that he was going to be doing a public appearance at the Golden Mile Shopping Center, which wasn't far away from from it was within walking distance of my house, so I drove. And uh, the actually I walked I walked and. Uh, it was by the old, what is it, crap, the Met store? There was an ice cream stand in the Gold Mile Shopping Center, and Joey Walters was just standing there by himself. And uh, I walked over, introduced myself, and talked to him for 45 minutes. Just, just shot the breeze with Joey Walters. And afterwards, he apologized for taking up so much of my time. And I just could not believe it. He, was, he felt sincerely bad that he felt he had consumed 45 minutes of my time. And I'm talking to this amazingly nice guy. And he went on that year to catch 91 passes for 1,715 yards and 14 touchdowns and was stopped four times at the one-yard line. And uh, just and then I just I got to know him. In 1990, he came back up for the Plaza of Honor. And uh, I got a chance to sit down and do a story on him. And we became very friendly at that point. We stayed in touch. And... Uh, I could fill 88 podcasts with what a nice person Joey Walters is. I hope any rider fan who is, is uh, never had a chance to meet him. They just, I hope you take advantage of the opportunity should it arise. Cause he's just an absolute, uh, 100% sensational person. And he was a pretty good football player. The most spectacular receiver I've ever seen. We That's could, my Joey Walters, uh, uh, campaign. We could probably have you on for, another 99 podcast talking about this book, 100 things Rough Riders fans should know and do before they die. Uh, Rob, obviously available at, uh, you know, chapters, Indigo. My trunk. Your trunk. <laughs> so if you see Rob in the drive-thru or standing at the buffet, you said you're going to the buffet. If you catch him at the buffet, make sure uh, you stop Rob and, and get one of these books. This is going to be great. We actually have one to give away as well too. So uh, watch our social media for that, Twitter and Facebook as well. We'll give away a copy of this book. Rob, uh, before we do let you go here, we're going to talk a little bit about this uh, Bombers game coming up here. Sure. Yeah. Um, Joey Walters used to be a Bomber, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Number 73 for the Bombers in 1977 before oh. he came to Saskatchewan. Well, see, he, so there's he's, he's, he smartened up and got it right, right? We, <laughs> the we bombers, won't hold that the against him. The Bombers <laughs> messed that one up big time. Uh, so our Tallgrass Apparel enemy preview, we talked about the two-headed um, you know, quarterback that, that Winnipeg has. Do you expect, if Cody Fajardo does not play this game, do you expect the Riders to kind of employ their own two-quarterback system with Isaac Harker and, and, you know, Brian Bennett? Maybe they can, but I don't think they have the the uh, enough oomph with the passing attack. Winnipeg is tough to throw against anyway, but uh, they need Cody Fajardo or at least 80% of him, I think, to be successful against Winnipeg. That's a tough defense, and... Uh, there's been so much talk about the Bomber quarterbacking, but with the Rough Riders heading into practice this week, I think the angle is soon going to change. 
uh, to the health of the Rough Rider quarterback. If Cody Fajardo can't look like Cody Fajardo, that could change everything. I'm just not sure the Riders can go in there with Isaac Harker again and win. Like he's right out of college. You don't just don't see that very often. And what not he did a big against time college either. No, what what he did out of what he did against Edmonton was amazing. But it's is that just too much of an ask for him to do that against a team that is trying to get to a Grey Cup and a team that, unlike Edmonton on November second, isn't resting a bunch of starters. I that's the that is the fear is that Cody Fajardo can't play like Cody Fajardo. Uh, has to play because I, I just, it's not the same tier of quarterbacking if you're talking Harker and some Brian Bennett as opposed to Chris Trevler and Zach Kalaros. And in a game of this importance, when you're talking about position of that importance, that could tip it. The, the thing that scares me most about the potential for an Isaac Harker start is we saw him against Edmonton and almost everything he threw was five, six, seven yards downfield or closer. He wasn't doing it. There was no real deep threat like you get with Cody Fajardo and Shaq Evans especially, they didn't seem to have that same chemistry. And obviously his first start, they're not going to have it. That scares me. You cannot be that one-dimensional against a quality defense like the Winnipeg Blue Bombers because all they have to do now is is stop William Powell because uh, Isaac Harker isn't going to beat you through the air. Yeah, I will point out that uh, right at the, early in the first quarter, Shaq Evans opened down the left sideline and I'm not sure if that was a slight overthrow or a pass that Shaq Evans ordinarily would have caught, but he was open. The pass was pretty close. And I, you look at that pass that, that Isaac Harker threw to Justin McInnes when Edmonton sent everybody. And, uh, and he got that pass off right before he got cranked and uh, wasn't a, an amazing throw by any stretch of the imagination, but he got it to where the receiver had to, or to where it had to be for Justin McInnes to make the catch. And, if they don't make that play in the face of a you know, of a real you know torrential blitz, maybe they're not a first place football team. So yeah, he didn't he wasn't especially proficient on the downfield throws, but that one to Shaq Evans, I still think that's a play that Shaq Evans is going to make more than he doesn't make it. And uh, that throw to Justin McKinnis, considering the pressure he was facing, was phenomenal. Uh, two quick things before we do have to get going here this week. Who's the X factor in this game for the Riders, Steve? I mean, besides Cody Fajardo. I think it's William Powell. They need to ride him like they haven't been this season. I think they've been keeping him keeping him rested, and he's ready to go. You you bust him out against a Winnipeg defense and make them respect the run, and it opens everything up. Rob? Micah Johnson can have such a detrimental effect on what Winnipeg wants to do with the running game, and that's why they signed him to the type of contract they did. They signed William Powell as a free agent, made that as a priority very quickly. But the other major priority on that day, aside from all the chatter about the quarterbacking, was Micah Johnson. And if Micah Johnson can, from an interior line position, can just disrupt whatever the Bombers want to do, he could take over again. There's been so much talk about Charleston Hughes or Willie Jefferson. This is the time for Micah Johnson to have the type of game that he has had repeatedly in the past and absolutely has to have on Sunday. Well, they thought they thought Micah Johnson was good enough to let a guy like Willie Jefferson go. I agree with you. As an extension to that, I'm going to go with uh, Solomon Elamimian just because he's going to have to watch Harris and Strevler as well whenever Strevler comes into the game too. So he's going to have a lot of assignments, different assignments in this game. So I'm really intrigued to see how that works out. And and finally, our pick this week, we'll start in the East, Edmonton at Hamilton. <laughs> You're asking me, my predictions were 0-2 last week and could not have been more wrong. Um, I'm going to pick Hamilton, uh, just 15-3 and I uh, at home. And given the overall excellence of that team, I can't see that happening. But again, put an asterisk beside any prediction that I hazard at this point in the year. I, same thing. I got to go Hamilton. That team is too good to lose to uh, to the Edmonton Eskimos. Bye week won't hurt them. Orlando will have them ready to go. Hamilton will win that game. And of course, the West final, Winnipeg at Saskatchewan. Steve? I, I got to go Riders. Nothing, nothing about Winnipeg scares me outside of, uh, well, pretty much everything. But... <laughs> no, <laughs> no, it's it's going to be the riders, and I think, and I I do this regularly, double digits. I think if what you've got to do to get to a Grey Cup is defeat a quarterbacking tandem of of Zach Claros and Chris Strevler, with all due acknowledgement of what they did did this, did this past weekend, if that's the hurdle you have to clear to get to a Grey Cup, I don't think you're you're talking about having to really scale a particularly formidable wall here. So, uh, again, the variable is Cody Fajardo's health. But all things being equal, the Rough Riders should win this game. And uh, 
it shouldn't be that interesting by the fourth quarter. I I hope you're both right on that. I have just this weird, weird feeling about this game that it's going to end up being a, a Grey Cup battle of the droughts, but uh, I, I'm reluctantly seeing the Riders by, I don't want to say it, but another walk-off field goal, and everyone's going to be chewing on their nails the entire fourth quarter, and it's going to come down to a big kick for a guy who missed four kicks his last game, and I, I think he's going to be absolutely money. Brett Lothar, of course, getting that game-winning one to send us to the field goal or sending us to the Grey Cup. I think that would be just kind of a fitting story to kind of wrap up the uh, you know, season going into the Grey Cup. But, Rob, thank you so much for oh. coming in, co-hosting with us this oh, week. Thank you so and much for having me. Sorry for my croaky bronchitis voice. <laughs> oh, it's no better or no worse than uh, what we... Everybody hears every week with us anyway. So uh, thanks so much for coming in. Of course, the book, 100 Things Rough Riders Fans Should Know and Do Before They Die. Make sure you go out and get a copy of this because this is a wonderful book. And Rob, I can't wait. To, I haven't read it all yet. I have gone through a couple chapters and I can't wait to, to sit down and, and read the whole thing. So it's uh Well, I haven't, awesome read, I haven't read it yet either. So let me know what, <laughs> let me know what I should. Absolutely. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. It's been uh, great to chat with you guys again this is the piffles podcast you can check us out on twitter at piffles pod you can follow me at real alex d find me at safamod and uh rob of course at rob vanstone at rob vanstone very original name rob yeah it's uh, so much creativity (laughs) (laughs) piffles podcast of course brought to you by our great friends at dairy queen on elphinstone street and sass drive in regina special thanks as well to kathy festion of royal page regina realty Tallgrass apparel churchill brewing company and underdogs memorabilia for their support to make the show possible Piffles Podcast is a proud member of the CFPN, the Canadian Football Podcast Network, and a part of the Saskatchewan Podcast Network. Here's some local talent for you. This is Tyler Gilbert, Ghost Behind Your Mind. Oh